This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey everybody, Jeff Kasouf here hosting the Equalizer podcast and this week I'm joined by Claire Watkins and John Halloran and if you listened last week we looked back at 2020 and everything that was in the women's soccer world certainly in the U.S. specifically and now a week later here we're going to look ahead as we turn the page toward 2021 so Claire, John, thanks for for doing this. We should have a little bit of fun to uh We'll try to get a little wild with some predictions, I guess, for the year ahead and, and maybe beyond. Yes, we'll do predictions, and they will all be 100% correct. as they <laughs> Well, we're just jumping the gun, right? I mean, John, we're, we're used to uh, predictions in March being terrible, so we're just doing them in December of the year prior right. now. Right, <laughs> um, Well, I guess, the, you know, for those of you listening, like we said, we're going to try to have some fun on this pod, and – you know, predictions, I guess, is the sort of general word for it. But uh, we're going to look ahead a little bit with, you know, some direction. Um, if you listen to our other pod on the Equalizer, and, and that, of course, um, being EqualizerSoccer.com, if you're following along there, we have the Kicking Back podcast, which uh, Claire wonderfully produced, and, and I usually host. Um, and we had NWSL Commissioner Lisa Baird on recently, and she did give – I would say a fair amount of insight, you know, certainly some news nuggets into some direction that the NWSL is headed in 2021 and, and beyond a lot toward 2022, even as that would be a a 10th anniversary season. So we'll use a little bit of that to guide us. And and there's some obvious sort of fact base there coming straight from the commissioner. And then we'll try to expand upon that a little bit uh, objectively, or maybe just, um, hysterically if if need be on on what's to come so um, we asked some of you uh, maybe on short notice a little bit we got a couple predictions that we'll try to work in here I'll try to pull them up as we go um, that are I think mostly we're we're on the field but um, we'll we'll work some of those in and um, you know if you didn't have time to send us anything you can yell at us afterward on Twitter or wherever else you know um, maybe after you've given us those five-star reviews on the podcast here. So um, we'll get right into it with um, some different categories. And I want to start with the league. And, and as I said, you know, a lot probably U.S. focused, but we'll try to touch on a few different things. So, um, you know, we saw some challenges in 2020 for the NWSL. We talked about them. Um, I spoke about them with Pardeep Katri and Rachel Krigger on the, the last podcast looking back. So let's look ahead and Claire, we can start with you. Um, maybe a fill in the blank or take this where you will. 2021, the NWSL, what what are you expecting? What what will happen for the league in 2021? My well, my hope, my hope for the NWSL in 2021, um, with kind of measured expectations based on what 2020 was, but 
kind of imagine, obviously, 2020, they were able to play games. The Challenge Cup was a big success, all of that sort of stuff. But what I would love for 2021 is to essentially execute a league season with a full year's run-up in a way. You know, they spent all of this year doing, you know, audibling a little bit. Um, So now they have the opportunity to do this Challenge Cup, do the league season. Um, I thought one of the really interesting things that Baird said, you know, when she was talking to you was that they're spending time trying to like consolidate the rule book in the NWSL and just present something that is organized with the media arm and the TV arm um, and a wide variety of programming just to really kind of establish themselves as they would like to be. And then in 2022, maybe take the big step up in that 10th anniversary season. John, what about you? What, what's something you're looking forward to in the, on the league front? I think that 2021 is going to be absolute chaos and fun, just like every other NWSL season tends to be, especially in, in, a, in a big international tournament year. So with the Olympics coming in, with the players, you know, that'll be leaving midseason and then coming back at the end, uh, I think that offers everybody a lot of opportunity, not unlike this year where, we saw with some big name players not participating and and got to learn about a whole new group of players that a lot of us weren't uh, intimately familiar with. So I'm just excited. I just think with, with Louisville coming in with the, the move with Kansas city, I think, uh, and like I said, it's kind of that built in chaos with the international calendar that we're in for, for a lot of fun. Yeah. I think, um, so, you know, you saying that makes me think of this too, which this will be the first opportunity the NWSL has ever had to have a team hoist a trophy before the big international tournament, um, which I think is just only positive, right? Because we're just going to be a lot of roster conversation. There's going to be talk about how the U.S. has been playing up until that point. And the fact that you're going to have people who are either Olympic hopefuls or U.S. Women's National Team mainstays be on potentially a Challenge Cup winning NWSL team um, that is just built in momentum that the league has never quite put together before the tournament before. And yeah, players ca- fighting for spots, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And chaos is definitely, you know, an appropriate word at all times in this league. And I think even recording this very close around uh, Christmas new year here that, um, you know, I would expect that to even start early in January. There's, I think the draft is always a place where, something silly happens on a big trade front. I think I'd have to look at some notes, but more drafts than not have had a blockbuster, so to speak, trade. So, you know, I think we'll, we'll get that right away. And then, you know, the, the player movement in this league is always, it's, it's evergreen. So, you know, it's going to be something, I think we have expansion, further expansion coming, you know, that we already know about anyway, some of it, um, the end of 2021 and the 22. So I think, yeah, some player movement, some chaos on that front. And I guess bigger picture, I'd like to see 2021. Obviously, I'd like to see the world in a safe enough place that we have fans back. And I'm sure that's very high on the list for owners and, and a revenue perspective. Um, and I hope, yeah, further momentum. You know, Claire, you hit on the media arm. I'd like to see, you know, this this 500% growth in in TV viewership. I mean, I'd like to see some some version of sustaining that. I don't know if it's going to be that kind of number, but um, you know, just having the platform, even the games on big CBS when you can and just accessibility will be, will be pretty big. So um, you both touch on challenge cup. Do you think 
a challenge cup um, for, for those of you listening, the, the quick skinny of it, uh, challenge cup will be back as a tournament before the actual regular season starts, which is essentially to build in the unknown still of this, this virus that I think at worst case scenario, you could cancel a little mini tournament and not have to delay a season. But um, how do you feel about challenge cup round two and the excitement for it? Knowing it's um, I mean, I, I'm, I guess I'm excited for it, but it's kind of a preseason tournament now, isn't it? Yes. I mean, essentially, yes. I think that probably in a year where, you know, hopefully we won't be dealing with the after effects of, of the pandemic into multiple years going forward. But um, it is, I mean, it reminds me a little bit, and John and I have both been to this. There is that Portland preseason tournament, the actual preseason tournament that they've been doing for a number of years. And, and Merritt Paulson tweeted that Portland um, put in a bid for the Challenge Cup for this year. So I wonder if they would just you know, maybe roll in that infrastructure and turn it into something a little bit bigger and a little bit more prestigious. Or, you know, think of also the equivalent of Lyon and Manchester City coming over here for the ICC, you know, during their preseason. Um, so that kind of stuff isn't unprecedented. Um, and so I do think that, yes, it's going to feel a little bit like a preseason tournament. Um, the one other thing I want to say, though, about the Challenge Cup that I'm looking forward to seeing is I, I don't want to understate a little bit, especially for some, you know, some teams, you know, the Chicago players have talked about this a lot about how there were things in terms of protocols that made the original challenge cup, very challenging mentally and emotionally. And so I'm looking forward to a challenge cup that feels a little bit less stressful and um, wears people down a little bit less and hopefully people can have a little bit more fun with it. Yeah, I think, you know, I've said this before, I think in a, in a regular year, assuming we ever return to the before times, that uh, the Challenge Cup ends up being a, a summer tournament that's played during those big international breaks uh, and offers an opportunity for the league to kind of keep some, some relevance and also an opportunity for teams to play some younger players, for fans to see some younger players, uh, almost kind of like a, an opportunity to see those players maybe, you know, 14 through 20 on the depth chart. Um, but obviously this year is a unique situation, I think, especially because w none of us know, right? right? I mean, uh, w where we're going to be in a few weeks. And I saw that uh, the KC franchise tweeted out today that the preseason starts in six weeks, which sounds absolutely insane because, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, if, if, if we're being realistic, like we're probably going to hit a third surge uh, in January. And so it, it, it's nice to think about this challenge cup being a little bit more normal, but uh, the reality of that situation, it, there's still going to be plenty of, of uh, necessary protocols, I think, for this tournament. Uh, and I, I do think that uh, as much as, you know, again, it, it needed to be done this way this year, because we don't really know where we're going to be. Mm -hmm. And we should probably acknowledge, you know, as of now, certainly officially, there's no real indication of what this Challenge Cup will look like structurally. When it was announced mid-November, um, I, I had kind of followed up with the league because there was some, was a little bit vague in the press release, which is, I mean, is never the case, I know, but um, it was said, you know, so basically, as of that point, I was told that there would be two groups with each team playing three or four games and each group winner would go straight to a championship game, whether that 
changes. I mean, it certainly didn't sound like it was firm and we also didn't know. It sounds like it's, it'll still be, it's still TBD based on how the world looks as to whether this will be something teams are traveling for, or if it's hosted on one site again, like, you know, similar to, to Utah, but you know, I, I did see the Merritt Paulson tweet. And even before that tweet, I had talked to some people who, you know, it, it sounded like, and it was, it was put to me like, well, basically everybody's going to want to host the thing if it's a single site tournament. So, you know, Portland maybe is, is feels like an obvious place, but I think there are several places that could handle it and, and do well with it. Um, and I think, you know, if it's going to be a single site thing, I could imagine most, if not all of the teams would try to make a bid for that. And, you know, obviously plenty of them have good facilities, but um, yeah, I guess we just have to see what the, the actual structure is, but I would like to see it maybe as a, a summer tournament, like you said, in the, in the future, but not at the expense maybe of something bigger, which we can, we can talk about maybe as we progress in this pod here. But I think that summer window, you know, the ICC, Claire, you mentioned has been one um, in the past, which whether it's the ICC or an actual club world cup, whatever it is, I think that's probably, maybe that's where, I don't know. Maybe it is the summer, maybe not, because that's off season for European teams, and then you have the preseason argument. So right. maybe it's yeah. preseason for the NWSL. Yeah, and one one other thing I do want to say though is that I I really actually appreciate the league putting this where it is and not pretending that everything will be back to normal at the beginning of 2021. Like I actually very much appreciate the fact that they are putting in some some mitigating ideas and it just really always seems like they are putting, you know, player safety at the forefront. And and I really do appreciate that because we've seen a lot of American sports leagues power through in ways that were not necessarily the safest. So it's imperfect for scheduling, but in terms of feeling like they are reading the room a little bit and then have their finger on the pulse of what their players and their fans want, I appreciate them doing it this way. And the NWSL thinking ahead is a positive sign because there's been plenty of times in the past where we've seen that it seems like they're kind of doing stuff at the last minute or haven't thought stuff out or haven't communicated ideas very clearly. Well, yeah, I mean, you talk about the passage of time. Part of the reason they needed to get this figured out is because we're having loan periods end out, out in specifically the WSL most recently. So um, they had to do this to make sure that they could give players some assurances about what they were right. looking at this year. And, I, yeah, it seems like a really good thing to do. Yeah, I would like to amend my first answer about 2021 for the NWSL. I think I hope that it is an indication that there is a plan like to piggyback off what you just said, because there, there has been, it has been a league in which whether it was a commissioner or a time there wasn't a commissioner or previous roles that weren't called commissioner or, you know, from an ownership level, just everything has been putting out fires. And that's, you know, the league, if we want to look at it like a startup, which it, it really is, was, still is, you know, that's part of it. But you also have to have a plan of, how to get through that phase and into your sort of 2.0 best self. And I don't know that we really saw any indication of that because there was so much of the putting out fires for so long and still was, but the one blessing of 2020 we thought was, okay, there's not really much of a competition. And maybe after you get through challenge cup, you still have six months to say, what is this going to look like over the next two, three, five, ten 10 years and this is a time where you're not dealing with a season in the moment, 
that you can plan for it. And I hope that we see the fruits of that very soon. And, and over the next couple of years, I don't know what that necessarily looks like. Maybe the challenge cup existing and having a plan is part of that, but I really hope that, that that's what we see. And, and that'll lead us into some other topics here that I, I want to get to. So um, we can fold that into, let, let's talk about one of them. And I want to play a, a short clip here from Lisa Barrett on that kicking back podcast, which if you don't listen to or haven't subscribed to go ahead and check it out um, on any platform. This is Lisa Baird recently the, the past couple of weeks here on kicking back talking about the relationship with us soccer going forward, which is going to change in 2021. I think it'll be one based on principles. Like we want the U.S. women's national team to play in our league. In order to do that, um, we have to be investing in our league. And it goes back to this principle of high performance that I've been talking about. You know, we really have to continue to lead the way with the women's game in terms of high performance. And U.S. soccer is completely aligned with that strategy. Um, uh, you know, for next year, uh, the, you know, I'm hoping that all the women's team will be playing in our league. I'm pretty sure some of them, if not most of them are going to come back and play. Um, and, um, from then it's really continuing to build it so that we retain the edge over a lot of teams, particularly in Europe that are investing in it. So from that strategy, I think the alignment is there. Um, I talked to Will Wilson a lot. Um, I think we'll hopefully work on some marketing ideas together. We've not done that before, really. And I think that's an opportunity for us. So their chief revenue officer, David Wright, is is linked with our new chief revenue officer, Mitch Pohl. So it's really building the bridges on those things that um, that matter to both of us. But I think the high performance, continuing to have the U.S. Women's National Team players play with us, continuing to upgrade um, U.S. soccer and NWSL within the overall sports line. Uh, that'll, that'll be what the future relationship will be built on. So Lisa Baird there, she says she wants that relationship to be based on principle. She wants the U.S. players playing in the league. She stresses twice in that hour-long podcast or, or roughly hour-long that we spoke um, that it is – going to be one about high performance is is this relationship um, the u.s soccer relationship with the nwsl previously has been very much about organizational structure and running the front office which um, that has sort of informally evolved or um, i don't know if evolved is the term but eroded maybe is the term even over the years but formally will will go away now um, so some level of independence at a front office level for the NWSL, but um, we've heard for many years, uh, John, I think, I think this is one of our many horror stories from France of you trying to, you were reporting a little bit on this, uh, the relationship that was going to change, right? A another year of that at the end of 2019. And, and every year it's been put off of basically we're, we're going to figure this out for another year. And right. It sounds like there's a little bit of that tied in Lisa Baird's answer here, but it sounds like finally there is a direction that the NWSL will try to live on its own business-wise, structurally, and there will be some tie-in to the obvious performance of this is a U.S. Players League predominantly. So, uh, John, maybe we'll start with you. Thoughts on maybe not so much even what this will look like because we still have some to learn, but what you think this uh, long-term, how this is going to evolve? Because you've written about this too. The U.S. soccer relationship. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think <laughs> the funny part is, is that 
if you talk to the people involved on the player side, they will tell you they want it to evolve, but they're also dealing with a, a conflicting interest in that the contract structure as it is gives the players a fair amount of security. And so you're, you're trying to balance what's best for the future with what is best for your players right now who are under contract. And so we know, again, for better or for worse, because there are positives of this as well, but we know for a fact that players who are under a U.S. contract don't necessarily need to perform for their club, don't necessarily need to, in some cases, even play very often for their club to keep their spot on the national team because those contracts are given out annually. And so, you know, once you get that contract or once you're kind of in the coach's plans, um, how much you need to be committed to to your club uh, is certainly a factor that varies player by player. And again, there are some positives to that. We've seen a few cases in which U.S. players were able to time surgeries around club play so that they were available for big international tournaments or take rest when they needed to. But obviously, if you are an NWSL coach um, or even fan of a, a specific team, that can be a little frustrating. And so it's a very, very difficult relationship, I think, to figure out for the future, because I do think that the solution is to uh, get it to a point where these players are making their living from their club and that the they, it's more like a system where the men, where they're paid a bonus when they're called um, into U.S. camps. But like I said, there are advantages with the way that the current system is set up. And there's also advantages for the clubs because they are uh, alleviated of that salary responsibility. I agree with all of that. I think that that's one of the age-old conversations um, of, of the NWSL. Um, but yeah, I think it was my mind kind of went to to some of the counterpoints there though as well, which is, um, you know, a thing that I think, I, I think I've talked about before and I think we all agree on is that one of the things that the NWSL has not necessarily always been great about providing coverage for um, is staffing. And, and that can mean front offices, but that can also mean coaching staffs. And so the idea of, of some kind of U.S. Uh, coverage on specifically something like high performance um, I think is a positive in that I think also on the player's side, you might have some players who are in club situations where they don't necessarily feel like they are being set up to kind of optimize their performance and, and perform as well as they possibly could for the U S which is many of their goals. And so um, I understand how that relationship, despite having some issues can be mutually beneficial in providing support that is not monetary. So this might actually be something where if, if the concept is that the league and, and the, and the federation are working together to make sure that everyone is, is playing as well as they possibly could be um, that's providing security that might eventually lead to conversations about salary. So um, yeah, I think that I'm interested to see where that goes. I think we're, we're sort of talking about the big thing here, which is, you know, 2021, I mean, I guess, this is going to be a year to year thing in some regard, because we can only guarantee what things look like to what you both alluded to for the next year, because the CBA for the U S women ends the end of December 31st, 2021. And who knows what it's going to look like. I don't know. I thought maybe a few years back that we were setting things up for a system where, you know, the, the 
maybe the clubs are paying them. And I think we've in some ways hit the gas pedal on going toward that, that, you know, the clubs are going to need to be responsible for U S salaries, but the, the intertwining of these things still exists. And, you know, I just don't see, we can probably spend way longer than we should on this podcast on the, the lawsuit situation, the CBA rewrite, but I don't see a scenario in which U S players are giving up the guaranteed contracts, right? That's, that's been the sticking point throughout. The one thing that does feel like maybe it's changed a little bit relatively recently is just some of the discourse and the rhetoric between players and the Federation. And then maybe also thinking the league and the Federation has possibly become a little bit less adversarial um, this year with some of the changes that the Federation has, has had and um, looking towards resolutions towards that lawsuit. I don't know exactly where this goes, but there was a while there, right, where we had some of the writing in that lawsuit, not only talking about the players, but they were saying some things about the league that weren't great, like the the Federation's opinion of, of the league's ability to um, run themselves. And I think that in an attempt to take walk back some of that rhetoric, um, there might be more opportunities for some more just good faith negotiating between all the parties, I would hope, at least. You know, just to add one thing, I think that we saw last I'm trying to remember if it was October, early November, when they when they introduced allocation money at the beginning. I think the one thing that kind of breaks the dam here is, and this might be five, 10 years down the line, but when it, or if you start to see non-U.S. allocated players making similar or potentially even more money than allocated players, then that's when I think you'll see the, the dam break. And I think we might be there to be honest. I mean, I, we're very close to that, I think. So I think we've got the next year, I think will be a very important one. Obviously since the CBA needs renewing at the end of 21, but I think it'll be a very important year to figure out what that relationship looks like going forward. And and I think, I mean, we talked about this. I wrote this the the day they introduced allocation money in, what was it? I guess it was November 1st, maybe at that point, 2019, that, like they have immediately opened up the door to U.S. players not being happy about this, and they shouldn't be. Um, you know that they can't that there's a cap on them, but you know an international player could come in and theoretically make three hundred thousand dollars a year from playing for an NWSL team. So I, I think we're there. Uh, how that plays we, we, out. I was going to say we saw that R- R- Megan Rapino spoke out about that. I think like a two right. or three days after that news came out. Right. So. And I, the, so I was going to, the shocking part is like, I don't know how that surprises anybody who made those rules, but I, it might've. Yeah, it I, might be a good thing though, in the long term, right? I mean, that's what, if that's what it's going to take. Well, I think it's not only just competition from outside, but I think that um, there have been a number of, I think that we're about to see, because we have a very, I've talked about this before. I think we have a very strong class of young American players coming up who are maybe sophomores or juniors in college right now, um, who are going to be making decisions about what they want to do for their professional careers. And these, this is kind of this new wave of these players who the league has been around for almost 10 years. They've known about this league since they were kids there, the expectations of, of what awaits them even 
might be more than just kind of locking into a U.S. allocation system. Because we're, I think with every player, too, you have negotiations of should they leave college early. And actually, this goes back to something that Baird said on kicking back, which you talked to her a little bit about player pool and stuff like that. And the first thing she hit on was homegrown and competing with the college system. And even more than talking about bringing players in from, from outside the U S. So I'm really interested in what ambitions the league has for homegrown player rules um, and for what they can do to get some of those players, maybe not even necessarily out of the college system, but get talking to them a little bit earlier um, and what that also means for what those players expect upon arriving in the league. How about that? That struck me. You just said these players have been watching this league since they were kids. Yeah. <laughs> That's new. Yep. <laughs> that is new. That I mean, it'll be season – I guess there's an asterisk to call it season nine with how 2020 went. But, we're, I mean, we're going to call it that. I mean, it, the Challenge Cup fall series we'll just kind of call a season, I guess. But – that's that's pretty wild. Well, let's before we take a little break, I want to talk players. So this is a good segue. We're talking U.S. national team already. Uh, we're assuming Olympics are going to happen. Uh, let's start with U.S. since we're talking about the national team. What, um, Claire? Maybe we'll start with you. What are you? What is the talking point you're looking at, or maybe prediction you have around the very limited 18-player U.S. roster that has a heck of a lot of competition with six or seven months to go. Yeah. Um, there's, it's going to be really interesting. I think I may, this is the one that I maybe feel the most confident on like saying out loud, even though it's a little bit like perhaps the flashiest, which is, I think, I think that Lynn Williams is in a roster hunt with Megan Rapino right now, maybe. And I think it's possible that, that Williams goes and Rapino does not at this point. Well, I don't want to be lazy here, but that is very much something that I would also point out with the way things have – I mean, Vlakonanovsky clearly rates Lynn Williams uh, significantly, much more even than, than Jill Ellis did. And I don't think it's a stretch to say those two are competing for the same spot. And and obviously Rapino has not played since March. So uh, January – I think January, February is going to be a very defining time for a lot of players, especially the ones we have not seen in a while, because January camp, they've got a long time to kind of prove themselves. February, she believes, we think is happening. Japan and Brazil have said they're playing, even though nothing's official in any capacity. So um, I'm going to have to think of maybe if I have another one, because Lynn Williams is definitely, I think, one of the big ones for under Vlaco. What, what about you, John? I think just to kind of tail off of uh, of Claire's point there that, when you look at and again, people are never ready for this because they don't quite understand that, that change from the 23 player to the 18 player roster. But um, I mean, it, it could be Rapino, it, it could be Lloyd. Um, right. And I think the, the other thing that I am just fascinated to see is who they bring as a, a backup outside back, because the one thing they don't have on their roster is a lot of versatility going towards um, towards the defensive end. So in other words, you know, we know that Dunn can play forward, but who are the players higher up the field that can play back? Because when you look at this and you have O'Hara and you have Dunn, 
we still have not really established because the, the depth of the roster defensively never really came into question in France until the, the second half of the final. But, you know, does Ali Krieger uh, sneak her way onto that Olympic roster? Is it Sonnet? Does Purse come in there? Because Purse has that best versatility. And that's, that's what I'm really fascinated to see because I think you have to take six defenders. Uh, and I think probably five of those spots are already decided. And I'm really curious to see who he brings uh, as that other outside back. Yeah, good point. And maybe I'll just point out then, since we haven't said it yet, I mean, the the Katerina Macario question, I think, will be one to follow. I don't know if I have a prediction at this stage, because I think there's just a lot to figure out, even, I guess, technically still. But I think all the, the pieces are kind of in place that it can happen if somebody wants it to, if Flacco wants it to. But Well, I would uh, think the bigger question for Macario is um, what conversations is, are she, is she having with Vlaco? and Kate Markgraf right now about what games they need to see from her before the Olympics while they're making that decision, you know, like is, is playing for Stanford this spring. I know she really wants to, I know that she's very committed to that, but is that the right place for her if she is actually fighting for an Olympic spot or should she make the jump now? And this could be an interesting window into new leadership, which we talked about. We even talked about it on last week's pod from a Cindy Parlo-Cone and Will Wilson perspective, but from a Vlako Anonofsky, Kate Markgraf perspective, we have recent very much, I mean, exact situations, right? Mallory Pugh, 2016, Tierna Davidson, Davidson 2019. Um, we have comparable situations where, we can say anybody can say what they want, but there was external pressure to be yeah. in a professional setting for those players. The, so. Especially the Tierna one, we know because she she was playing that summer before, and then it was kind of like she was, you know, almost straight out told that she needed to have that that experience if she wanted a chance to make that roster. Yeah. So I don't know if that's you know playing in the U.S. and you get, or the NWSL that is, and you get whatever games you get beforehand, if that's going to Europe or, you know, I, I agree, you know, the Stanford, um, I don't know, there's a lot TBD everywhere, but I think certainly in the college front as well. So um, I, that, I think we hit on some, some good ones. I don't know how we're still talking about fullback depth problems, but we are in, in the year <laughs> of 2021. Um Okay, well, keep on the player theme before we take a break. How about NWSL? Maybe this folds in even if you have Americans you're watching. But, uh, John, we can start with you this time. Who's a player you are looking at in the NWSL 2021? Maybe we can call it breakout or some version of that. Take that where you will. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer the question, but I'm going to take a, a slight cop out here. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the sky blue front line. Um. I was very excited to watch them, particularly in the fall series. I think that once Purse was pushed up there uh, with Anumanu and Monahan, they were very strong. I think there's a ton of potential there. You're looking at three pretty young, pretty talented forwards. Um, you know, we don't know how VNs or maybe even Pew works into that system, but those three in particular – I'm really excited to see what they can do with a, with a full season. How about you, Claire? Yeah. So I've got, I've got, I guess, two, um, one, one, one is also a cop-out, but one, one is not, um, the, the cop-out one a little bit is I, I have to say, and I don't know if you could call it a breakout, 
Um, but I just do think a little bit that it's possible that um, the high profileness of what Crystal Dunn does for a club team might be revitalized a little bit with a new jersey on. Um, I think that we talk a lot, you know, there was a lot of conversations about North Carolina, um, which included conversations about um, Dabinia and, and Paul Riley and what Paul Riley does with his system and that forward system and the box midfield and all of that sort of stuff. And, and despite the fact that we all knew that Crystal Dunn was a big part of that, I still am not sure that we have necessarily talked enough about specifically what she does as a club player. And so I think that it's possible that with a new spotlight, new Jersey, new, media covering her out there that there might be something of, of, of not better, but a deeper conversation um, about what she does as a forwarder and attacking midfielder. Um, and then my other one is this is one that still, I just rate this player um, and she had 2020 cut short and, and she's switched teams too, but I would just, I like Allie Watt a lot and um, am hopeful that she gets a full year to do some stuff for the rain because um, I think she's great. Nice. And I guess last week I talked a little bit about wanting to see a full season from Ashley Sanchez in Washington, but being pleasantly surprised at, at kind of how, I guess, quickly she adapted to at least the Challenge Cup. So I, I won't repeat that so much, but I think Tegan McGrady on that team as well will be one. We, we just talked about fullback depth. It's, I don't think that's a 2021 Olympics answer, obviously, but um, you know maybe at the longer term. So I would say – you know, again, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't have framed it as breakout because we're all kind of saying, you know, something to the degree of just who we're watching. But Sophia Smith, I think, is, is one that, you know, huge expectations. We're talking about players with expectations. You know, this is a player who at, at I think, every level club, international, even coming out of college, obviously leaving early, that the view here, much like Macario in some ways, same, very much, many parallels, is that this is a player of the U.S. and, and everybody's going to build around for the next decade. And, you know, 2020 being what it was, was short to begin with. And for her, it was extremely short because she was uh, dealing with some nagging injuries. So, um, yeah, I think seeing what she can do, hopefully in a, in a full season, I don't, maybe, maybe we're, maybe it won't be a full season for her if she's really competing hard for a spot on that 18. I think it's going to be a tough one for her to, to make maybe, but um, well, I think she'll be an interesting player to watch. Well, and then also, I mean, we're kind of, we've already talked about this, but if Katarina Macario does join the NWSL next year, I don't think there's going to be, I'm not sure there's going to, this will might be unprecedented in rookie expectations for one particular player. So I mm -hmm. think that we talk about breakout star opportunity for truly just shooting into the atmosphere, you would have to say Katarina Macario, I think. Yeah. Well, that's, that's totally fair. And I guess the, where she plays is going to be the, one of the big things to watch. And I think maybe we get a re resolution in the next month or so, I would think, but um, is it, is it the NWSL? Is it Europe? Is it Stanford? I mean, I guess Stanford would just be the, the in-between anyway, but you know, NWSL versus Europe. And honestly, if it's NWSL, where, because, you know, we, we've all kind of said, well, Louisville's got the number one pick. They've got the allocation money, but you can bet that, just about everybody in the league is, is trying to figure out how they get to a position to acquire her. And I, I don't think we, we haven't really heard from her much either. So I'm not going to assume that she's just jazzed to be at Louisville either. So um, that'll be an interesting story to watch. 
Well, that's some on the field. We've talked a little bit about off the field. We're going to take a quick break here on the Equalizer podcast and come back with a little bit more about uh, the future of the NWSL and maybe some rapid fire questions as well related to the league, the U.S. national team, and anything else. Um, Yeah, we'll be right back on the Equalizer podcast. Thanks for sticking with us. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Equalizer podcast. want to make sure that you're also aware of the Equalizer's other podcast called Kicking Back, which I host. I'm your host, Jeff Kasouf. Each week, I speak with a player, coach, personality from across the world of women's soccer for insight into their career and some current events. It's a nice, casual conversation, hence we're kicking back. Recent guests have included Vladko Andonovsky, Christy Mewis talking about her comeback to the U.S. national team, Jen Hildreth, the voice of the NWSL, Kelly Simmons from the FAWSL, Vero Bocchette, and recently Heather O'Reilly. Really great conversations on kicking back. So if you like the Equalizer podcast, please go ahead and listen to kicking back. Find us on any podcast platform, including the one you're listening to right now. We have a couple more great shows planned for the end of the year and a lot more planned for 2021. Now let's get back to the Equalizer podcast. Welcome back to the Equalizer podcast. Thank you for sticking with us. I'm Jeff Kasouf, Claire Watkins, John Halloran along with us here. We're talking about 2021 and beyond for the NWSL, the U.S. Women's National Team in particular. We talked a little bit about players on the field. We talked about U.S. soccer relationship and we're going to talk about a few more things here in the second half of this pod. want to make sure, first, uh, we teased a little bit, kicking back. If you're not subscribing to that already, please go ahead and do so on any podcast platform. And you can subscribe to our content year-round, equalizersoccer.com slash subscribe. Premium content, written and otherwise. Breaking news, analysis, in-depth features, exclusive interviews, uh, all that jazz. You will not be disappointed to join that premium content. So, Back here on the Equalizer podcast, and let's talk about expansion. Uh, I'll first, let's play this this clip from Lisa Baird, NWSL commissioner on Kicking Back, and she talks a little bit about expansion here, um, teases some numbers, some some points she, um, some important points. We'll, we'll let her tell us what she's looking for in expansion going forward for the NWSL. I have to say I've been delighted with the people that have reached out to me to express their interest, um, which is great. Um, and and not something we take for granted. Um, I, I don't know whether, if the number's 14, if it's 16, but it's not a lot. Um, we, our goal, and you could talk to any owner in the league, we are completely harmonized on our goal, which is we want to continue to be the best women's soccer league in the world. And that requires us to have the best players, the best facilities, the best high performance training, the best coaches. So um, when you look at that, you want to be very, very methodical about what your future expansion is and where. Um, The market is, the market um, choice is a really interesting one, right? You know, in some ways you go, well, wait, you did Los Angeles and Kansas City in one, in one year. Those are two wildly different markets. And you kind of look at them and you say, okay, who's the ownership group? What are the facilities? 
where's the depth of the fan base there? How do they compete in a crowded market, which is LA? But for us, LA as, you know, kind of one of the world's best sports markets, it, it is one of the world's best. If you look at the trajectory for Los for soccer in Los Angeles, you know, not only do you have the growing momentum of what we're doing with the league, but we definitely get an enormous bounce off of women's world cup. And there's two plus the men's world cup. I'm certain will will have a number of, of big important games there, which creates more soccer, um, soccer passion. And then of course the Olympic games in 28. Right. And, and we all know the women's tournament at the Olympic games is a, it's a big deal. So you look at LA and go, okay, that trajectory is really strong and solid. And then when you combine it with the ownership of Julie and Alexis and Natalie and Kara and David and um, uh, the rest of the people that are so excited, um, you know, the, the Julie Foudy has been really vocal and supportive as well as me and all the other, and you go, okay, their, their trajectory seems solid. But then we go and we revert to Kansas City. Now, why? Well, because, you know, we're going to be a top three, four team in Kansas City. Like we're, we're not going to be 29th. We're going to be, we're going to be front center in that city with what we hope will be a really exciting facility. Um, you know, I don't know if it's the first design for women, but I can tell you from what, um, uh, um, Angie and Chris have designed for us. They're really taking the needs of the women's game into account there. Um, and I think it's going to be a really exciting visionary experience. Um, they're well along with their financing. So I, I like the idea that we can create innovative road paths. So it's not just a formula. Um, and where we'll go next, it'll just be guided by making sure that the best players come into our league, that we keep the standard strong and that, requires investing in the core operations that will enable us to do that. So you heard it there from her, you know, the number we've previously heard that number as 14 in the past for number of total teams. And that would come quickly. Uh, She says, not sure if it's 14 or 16, you know, a lot in there, the ownership group has to be right. That's not new. They need a good stadium. I think the big thing that, and I tried to ask her this on the pod and she alluded to a little bit, you know, she spoke about, Kansas City and L.A., the announcements being very different markets. We do not know what the deal is yet in Sacramento still, but assuming that that's happening. Um, and there's the Utah opt-in. That puts them at 13, as, as we pointed out on the kick and back pod. So not a lot of options in terms of expansion opportunities. I've said this before. I'm not convinced that we're done with relocation because ownership changes are inherent in any league, especially a younger one. So uh, I'm not rooting for that. I should be clear, but I just don't think it's done and people should be prepared for that. So even though we're talking about one to three spots from expansion, we're not necessarily talking about only that number for um, new markets, but what is um, Claire, maybe we'll start with you. What, what is something to you that is a must? What, what, is it geography? Is it obviously ownership group, but what are you looking for in the expansion plans for NWSL going forward? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you talk, there's a hierarchy of needs here, obviously, and and you always just want it to be something where the owners are invested and they're going to be providing a good experience for players. And they're committed to not only having a team, but having it be good. Um, I do think location is important. Like, I'm not going to lie. I'm really happy that there are now three teams kind of in, in my part of the world, um, mine and John's part of the world. They needed that. It started to feel very coastal a little bit. Um, 
but, and I, and I just want to say this because I don't want to forget, I think that one of the good things that the, that the league has been doing with Angel City and then with this new Kansas City team is, and Baird talked about this a little bit, prioritizing an element of diversity and, and new-faced leadership into the ownership pool. Um, and they did that by, those are two uh, women-led ownership groups. And I think that that's great. And I would love to see that continue not only with women, but people of color, women of color. I want a priority there to make the ownership group, because we, as we all know, that's where the biggest decisions get made um, to reflect the diversity that also we'll hopefully see in the player pool and in the fan base. So um, in terms of what I would like to see, and also in terms of like lessons learned from 2020, I would love to see that be part of the priority when looking at bids. Um, I think uh, I would agree. And the one thing that I think we were kind of reminded of in the last week or so uh, as well is that an increased diversity of ownership might help some of these teams avoid some of the PR pitfalls um, or, or ways that maybe they've, they, they contradict the values of their fan base a little bit. Um, we've seen a number of teams kind of walk into that over the past couple of years. And um, I think that would help with that. I think regionally, one of the things that I'd like to see is I'd like to see a team in Canada. I'd like to see one of these um, expansion teams and, and kind of, you know, do, do what MLS has done, do what major league baseball has done, do what the NBA has done and expand the league uh, into Canada and give, and give those, those fans uh, a chance to be a part of this and, and maybe even inject a little bit of life into the Canadian national team, which I think, you know, a lot of us had just grown accustomed to seeing as as such a good rival for the U.S. And it does kind of feel like they've, they've fallen off in that regard a little bit in the last couple of years. Juicy, John. I like that. Canadian expansion. I know I know our friend Harjeet, she's always asking me about it. Uh, we'll be happy to hear that on this pod. Um, <laughs> I, I wonder I wonder where, because Vancouver was always the default and – as we've seen even in the past week with some new revelations of finally some, I guess, uh, some form of justice for um, a, a very disturbing situation that the Whitecaps were involved in, complicit with for, for many years, that uh, among many things, I think that Whitecaps, um, I don't think Vancouver is necessarily the answer. And I think that speaks to a bigger picture, which I, I think, you know, I said this to Lisa Baird, I've said it before and and I'm, happy to say it again. I mean, MLS ownership is not the only answer. I think it's clearly a very good potential one. It's worked in Portland. It worked um, to the degree that the facilities and everything were right and the support was there in Utah. Obviously, it did not end up working from maybe points you just pointed out, John, in terms of the the value base of the ownership group compared to what the league is and where it is. But MLS only is not the answer. And I think the diversity you mentioned, Claire, of women-owned groups here, they're also independent, quote-unquote, to the degree that they're not tied to a team. I think there are other ways to look at this. And whereas two years ago, there was one direction and you couldn't even get in the door, it seemed like, from expansion perspective, if you were not an MLS owner already, I think that has changed. And for the better, and it, it, we've seen with this Kansas City and Angel City group, you know, they still have a lot to prove. So I don't want to just sing their praises without stepping on a field or doing anything, but that there is a path forward there. And I think that could be independent, so to speak. I think that could be 
ownership through a different lens because the experience can work elsewhere. You know, I'm, I'm still a little bit, I don't know that the bid itself was necessarily so far along the line, but I did a little bit of reporting on a group in Hartford that wanted a team. And, and that is, you know, from the groups we know about, it's nowhere even kind of in the, the front dozen on the radar, I guess. But the idea that the Connecticut Sun were going to be involved in some capacity, I think was really intriguing in that there's no reason to think that a WNBA ownership group that's done well in that market that also has a soccer market could not be a crossover. I think there's other ways to look at this and think about it. And I will just say, but before you guys jump back in on this, I do think geography is a big deal. And maybe we should talk about this briefly because the the point you made, Claire, about not just being a coastal league is important. And I think now that you have Chicago, Kansas City, um, Louisville, and to a degree, Houston, you know, not necessarily the same there, but um, at least not being coastal, that it opens up your coast a little bit more again in expansion. And I think there are big markets that need to be looked at because if you're looking at 14 to 16 teams, there are markets that the league is in and has been in. We've seen that change with Rochester moving to North Carolina, you know, even the carry market per se, like if you only have 16 teams, you need to be in the right markets. It doesn't have to be the top 16 markets, but you know, the idea, if we go through quickly, the expansion teams, uh, expansion rumors, I guess we should call them that we've heard about. And there are other ones out there that I don't necessarily want to throw out there willy nilly because all of them are kind of not, totally progressed, but like Atlanta has been talked about. Cincinnati's always kind of thrown out there. Um, you know, two of those that, that jump out, who else am I blanking on here? Um, you know, but like Cincinnati is an example. You just added Louisville, you know, I don't want to take that away from a Cincinnati, but do you need to be a couple hours up the road when you only have 14 teams potentially does it, is it good for a rivalry? That geography, I think, is going to be a really important decision. And, you know, if we're talking about my own location and bias, Boston being gone, you have a big sort of hole in the Northeast. And, and I count that even beyond um, or including the fact that Sky Blue still needs to get a little bit closer to that New York market and I guess have with Red Bull. But, um, you know, Southeast, I think there's a lot to figure out geographically, too. Yeah, in terms of like total wish list, in terms of geography, um, I think you also solve a little bit of the middle of the country problem if your Canadian team is Toronto. Um, I think that that location wise, and also, I don't know if you would go MLS there. They obviously have a very well established MLS team there. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I think that everybody would love an Atlanta team. I think that that would be awesome. Um, but that is also just, you know, in terms of their MLS situation, they don't have a soccer specific venue, figuring that out, all of that sort of stuff that goes along with it. But those are maybe two markets in my mind um, that are very different, but I think would add a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and the Atlanta thing, I mean, from, I don't know if I've reported this before, but it, I'm happy to talk about it because I don't think it's far enough along even to say this is what's happening, but you know, the stadium problem that you bring up is a big one because I don't think Mercedes-Benz is the answer per se, as much as I think that it should be the women's team treated on equal footing. So maybe you do the the TARP thing where it becomes just a lower bowl and it's 20,000 some and you try to fill that. But like the very early, early days word that I was hearing was that, you know, if it was going to be Atlanta, would they play 
at like a smaller stadium they build on that training ground they have, like that's not an answer. So that's not an answer from a facility perspective. And, you know, maybe if you want to argue a diversity of ownership perspective, it's not quite there either. doesn't mean they shouldn't get the team or that shouldn't be the ownership group, but I think that's a consideration. Yeah. I mean, I think we talked about this when we were talking about moving Utah. I think that, um, I mean, God, the conversation of soccer in America and real estate going hand in hand has been, you know, going on since MLS first came into existence. And I just don't think that that conversation will probably ever entirely go away. But for, for especially for the women's side, I think expansion bids have to come with real estate and, and venues figured out. John, anything else you think on the, the expansion front? No, I think you guys uh, covered most of it. Yeah, I, I think that there are groups that would cover some of the, you know, quote unquote, middle of the country stuff. I think that, that are at some level of, I don't know, beginning stage is, is the term. But um, I, I think that there's, I will be interested to see who's in the league in five or so years time, because I think we could be at the 14, even 16 number, but I don't know if it's necessarily the exact 10 that we have. And I'd be very intrigued to see who the, the couple extra are um, because I think even the Utah clause, you know, it'll be very interesting to somebody exercise that option, whoever buys RSL because Utah was a very good market. You know, that's another sort of non-coastal option. So, you know, where do you go from there then? Uh, there's a lot of questions. We could probably talk expansion forever here. So I will, I will move us on, but I think a very interesting few years ahead on expansion and, and potentially movement, let's call it uh, for the league. So uh, that, that'll lead us into probably our other, maybe last big topic. Um, and again, I want to play a quick clip from Lisa Baird from kick it back here to guide us in this conversation, because she does drop some, some real hard news actually that, I mean, more or less, I don't know how definitively she said, maybe it'll be an evolution or a revolution, but the league is going to rebrand to some degree ahead of the 10th anniversary season in 2022. So here's what she said. It's something that's definitely on our, our radar right now. Um, we have, um, I think this year, an Olympic year at a World Cup year, it's probably pretty um, ambitious to try and fit them all in. But w- next year is our 10th anniversary as a league. And um, I really want to have um, some exciting events to launch um, in the 10th anniversary year. Um, it, it'll, it'll be, I think I've seen them, I've seen sponsors ask for them. I think they're great for the players. Most importantly, they're great for the fans. So you can see us really making a lot out of the 10th anniversary year with some, with some, with some cool events. The one thing that, you know, we'll, we're definitely going to do because again, it's, it's been nine years and they've gone really fast. I know for our teams and our owners and the players, but, um, we're looking forward to relaunching our brand, um, at the end of the year and for the, um, for the 10th anniversary. So whether that'd be an evolution or revolution, don't know yet. Um, excited to hear from the fans what they think, but, um, I think it's really, time to really look at our branding and our, our graphics. Okay. So Claire, John, there's a lot of ways that we can have some fun with this. I think, I don't know how far along anything is. It doesn't sound like super far along because she mentioned even still kind of commissioning a designer to, to explore these things, but it can't be too far out because the timelines that we know of to, to prep 
everything for 22. But, um, you know, I wrote earlier on equalizersoccer.com earlier this year about the league logo and how it kind of quickly came together in 2012. The silhouette, many people had a lot of guesses of who it was. Uh, I think I, I heard everything under the sun, even players who were not even professional at that stage of the game, which was kind of funny. But I know a lot of people, I thought a lot of people thought it was Lauren Holiday, but it is um, just a, a former college player who was commissioned to do a photo shoot and they made it into a logo. And um, I think the big thing that came from this year as part of other things was, you know, the, the ponytail thing, maybe, you know, that's not necessarily the direction needed. The WNBA was kind of a guiding principle um, or a guiding, you know, sort of brand study. Um, Claire, where, well, let's, let's package a couple things into this conversation. I, I don't know if you have a specific idea for an actual logo design. If you do, I'd love to hear it, but maybe what should the branding look like at a thousand foot level? What should the messaging represent of what the NWSL is come 10th anniversary, 2022? I think, I mean, I think the number one thing is, um, I hope because always we have this conversation, right? And I'll be honest. I don't love the NWSL logo. I don't love the NWSL font, even just the NWSL part. Um, I think it's dated. Uh, and, but you know, there's not necessarily anything that is timeless, right? That happens over time. So you always, you want to rebrand and then it happens and you're like, uh, can we go back to the old one? But, um, I think what I, the thought that I was having when you were talking about, you know, the ponytail, that sort of a thing, I don't want the NWSL to be afraid to be a women's league. It's fine. It's not necessarily, I mean, there, it doesn't have to be any concept of internalized condescension, worrying about um, like having that be front and center. I think that's fine. Uh, but I think also within that context, that's where you talk about how diversity is kind of power here. Um, when they do pick a designer, I don't think you necessarily want, um, depending on who's working on that, their idea of what a women's league is, or even what just the front office's ideas or the ownership group, because that's a pretty one-sided demographic as well. And I say, I liked that she said that there would be fan engagement. And I think that that also, you have to be careful, right? Cause you don't want too many people involved, but I would hope that they'd take some fan input and also maybe show drafts to some focus groups that are within the fan base and, and respond to that feedback as well so that they can come up with something that doesn't feel like a major, like a misstep, but also is not ashamed to be like, yeah, we're the national women's soccer league. Here's what our old logo was. We're not anti ponytail, but maybe that doesn't have to be the defining characteristic. And I think, again, you said the WNBA did that really well with their silhouette logo. I think that one's fantastic. So um, yeah, I, I, I don't have an answer, but I think that there is a process that you can go through where you end up with something pretty good. Well, Claire, you made me think of uh, real quick, but before you go, John, the, uh, we've been talking about like the league needing to plan things better. And I don't think they've necessarily handled a uh, shocker that I think this, but you know, the release and strategy around news very well historically. So, you know, this is one where, I think the idea of the quote unquote strategic leak of here is the logo we really yes. like, yep. and maybe it happens to come over the desktop of a media outlet. Certainly wouldn't complain if that was the equalizer, um, you know, and, and fans have a very negative reaction to it. You know, the team coming in this year, Louisville was supposed to be called proof Louisville FC and branded after 
whiskey. And it is now racing Louisville FC, which I don't know if I actually love, but that's, I don't want to get on a tangent, but the point was they, they were heard the fans, right? It was a terrible name. It was a poor logo, you know, and they went back to the drawing board. So I think that could be interesting to see in the spring that it's not just, it's a great point, Claire, that it's not just 10 ownership groups or 11, I guess, at that point, however many ownership groups saying, yes, we like this. Lisa Bear gives a thumbs up. You know, maybe the fans just submitted some things. So I'd be interested to see if they, they want to float that. John, what do you think for uh, whether a specific design or maybe just more so, you know, the, the idea of what the NWSL is and evokes? Yeah, I, I'll be honest. I'm probably not the best person to to solicit advice on this because I'm not. I don't have that uh, aesthetic. Um, but you know, I I'll be honest. I I and I understand the the you know the I don't know complaints is the best word, but uh, concerns that people have over the ponytail. Uh, I do like the classic colors. And I suppose you could also make an argument that that gets lost with the other leagues, but it looks very similar to what, you know, people are used to in seeing Major League Baseball, NFL, NBA, et cetera. So, you know, if you want to have a discussion of them having a generic logo, I suppose that that's also valid. But, you know, in both of you guys talking about missteps, you know, just being Chicago based, the, the fire rebrand, I thought was just an absolute disaster. I thought they took this very classic logo and just butchered it. And um, that's tough to see. And so you, it's a very, very tricky process. If you're going to redesign something to creating something that is unique, that uh, has a classic look, and at the same time, not committing some sort of, of, of visual atrocity. Mm-hmm. Right. That's kind of what I mean, where it's like, don't be afraid to be who you are. I would say that, you know, there's been a lot of discourse about the the, the silhouette, the figure that, that the NWSL uses now. But I don't want that to turn into some abstract concept of what an ad agency thinks a woman is. Mm-hmm. You know, like you don't want it to turn into that because then it just kind of feels depressing. Um, yeah. And and so I think that there has to be a balance there for sure. And John, I'm glad you brought up the, uh, I spoke with Brad Holst who designed the logo for that article. And he, one of the things he said, and, and there's a picture in that article where we've got the logo. It's actually from their slides from 2012, where the logo is in the sea of other U S sports logos. And the point is it's got the red, white, and blue. It's got a different silhouette, but it fits sort of the U S sports logo model expectation while still being its own. And I'm looking at it right now, actually, even this was when the WNBA was still under its old red, white, and blue logo as well before the the new silhouette. So um, I will say, I will say this too. Um, I think, and Utah has joined this list just recently. This is a young sport. It's a young league. And this is inherently part of, the problem. It's something MLS is still going through at, at a high profile level where, you know, the crew just won the championship. Uh, Claire, I think you're a big crew fan, as I recall. Yes, um, go crew. <laughs> you know, the glad to see them there and that that happened. Very happy for them. And that whole saga of where they're going to be gone, Austin then becoming expansion team. But there's a lot of erasing of history. And if we keep starting over every too often, there's no sort of tradition or history. Now, if a tradition right. is wrong, if a history has 
problematic tie to it, like we see with some sports teams that are changing names after, you know, 50 years, however long, because there's actually some inherent real problem with it, racism or otherwise. But, you know, if there's not this huge problem with them, I would like to see some history preserved. So maybe that is the preservation of the same silhouette in a different capacity, a different shape, outline. I don't know what that necessarily looks like. Maybe it's keeping the red, white, and blue, but uh, certainly keeping the name. I hope that we're not talking that drastic because I think the name is fine. But I would like to see some preservation of that that history because we erase it too much at a team level. We we don't even have the, the courage or not wearing the star that the Flash won. The Kansas City team, as I understand, is not going to wear the old FC Kansas City stars and the Utah Royals didn't wear them. And it's all just legalities and whatever. But we've erased this history to some degree by making these decisions. So I hope that that doesn't happen with the league logo. Um, and I would point out too, in that story that I wrote that they initially were looking at, I'm looking at it again, the Brandy Chastain 1999 moment where she's uh, clutching her Jersey and in the sports bra and, and, you know, on her knees, you know, celebrating. Um, and I think they, they basically decided that if, if you didn't grow up in that era, which a lot of people now have not, uh, you wouldn't actually maybe know what that moment is. So again, I think the silhouette to both of your points really works. So maybe it's a tweak of that rather than a total revolution. I don't know. Yeah. And this there is was also this the, is, uh, oh, sorry, go, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say this was this <laughs> just, just an aside. I, I do think it's fine and I kind of enjoy it when um, leagues, this is teams or leagues um, have some of the equipment of their sport still in uh, their logos. So like I, I said this when the, when the dash uh, they did their rebrand, um, I was like, oh man, we lost another soccer ball, but um, I wouldn't mind. Wouldn't, it's just sometimes <laughs> good too, just to like have a visual representation of the actual sport. If people don't know what the NWSL is, you know. I was just going to say that um, I actually took, I'm not a basketball fan, but I took a league, uh, a look at the WNBA logo. It, it's sharp, you know, and it doesn't conform with the traditional colors. Um but on the, on the silhouette front, that there was that great picture of Julie Ertz doing that that fist pump. Now it was a U.S. game, um, but doing that fist pump a few months back uh, before COVID, and that would be a great type of silhouette, I think, too. Yeah, she yeah. did. She did that. She did that once for Chicago too this year. So they wanted. To it's just a, it's a, it's a powerful yeah. image of her yeah. um, mm-hmm. expressing that that joy, but also competitiveness and and strength, I think as well. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's a defining sort of look, you know, moment like that. I don't know if there is. And, and even if there's a defining player, I think, you know, a Lauren holiday would come to mind for the early days of the league, but I don't think it's a bad thing that this is just a silhouette that they made that is not based off anybody in particular. And, you know, it, it works. Maybe you change the shape a little bit. Um, you know, the shape that it is is supposed to be for a traditional soccer ball. But I don't know. I think the two directions for the logo are going to be, you know, Claire, you said the word timeless before. Is it going to remain in this vicinity of like a silhouette of some sort and, you know, kind of how it is? Or is it going to go the super modern minimalist MLS route, which I would, in abstract, without seeing anything, I'm not going to get behind and I don't know that I don't know that that is timeless. And I don't know that the NWSL is in a position to just say, here are four letters to what you just said, Claire, and figure out what we are. <laughs> I think that, that it would be good to stay in the, the current 
frame, but I'm happy to see something as a mock-up that proves me wrong. Um, let's talk a little bit bigger picture since none of us are maybe graphic designer experts, but just on this subject, how would you, Lisa Baird teased a few things in that segment about 10th anniversary. She wants, uh, maybe this is stealing one of your points and, and it's certainly one of mine. She wants better graph, better designed, um, customized jerseys. I would love to see that. I would love to be able to order a jersey in April or May and get it before September or December, especially when it's a great one like the Chicago or Portland ones this year. Um, better gear overall. What is something you would like to see gear, trophy rebrand, whatever competition type to celebrate the 10th anniversary? What would you see as an appropriate way to mark 10 years, which is a significant accomplishment? Well, you, you've come to the right person for that. Cause I've been saying this for years, but I want an all-star game. <laughs> I think that is a grand American tradition that is fun and I have also said this before. I don't actually care if there's a game. Give me a skills weekend. Give me um, just something that is truly just media-based. It's fun. Um, for the NWSL, we only get one real media day, and it's at the championship. And I just think that there's yeah. a big opportunity to put this together so that you can have media from all over come in, talk to players from a variety of different teams, um, see them cool, do cool stuff and, and play with each other that don't usually get a chance to play with each other. Um, and it also takes a little bit of the heat off of championship weekend in terms of like a single neutral site, um, event. So really into that idea. Um, and, and then, yeah, I think you're right that merchandise distribution is really important. I wish that we, I think the NWSL shop getting off of, um, you know, getting off the ground was really good this year. Um, and then I think that, yeah, there needs to be a trophy rebrand. Absolutely. Um, and it could just be the simplest thing. I didn't love the Challenge Cup trophy. That one looked a little bit more no. like a vase. But um, I, I, like, I think you said it on, on the Kick and Back podcast, just make it a cup, something that people can drink out of. Um, and <laughs> Tie it to Budweiser. Yeah, make it big and heavy and something that people can hoist up in, in the air. And I think that you can't go wrong. I love the skills competition idea, and I would say this this would require way more planning than we're used to from a league perspective. But I'll do it. Um, well, well, the All Star Game that you mentioned, though, how about a Legends Game if it's 10th anniversary? It can be a small sided five v five. You got to f- let's find some players play a Legends Game. Yeah, I mean, I think that that also ties back to that idea that there are probably when we hit that 10th anniversary, the first five years of the league, like that first half of the league history might be stuff that people really are not super familiar with. So Mm -hmm. the opportunity to talk about talk to and talk about those people more um, is right there. I think that that would be very cool. John, do we steal all your ideas? Well, I just thought for somebody who's worried that we're going to erase the, the history of the league that you want to change the trophy. Who, me? Yeah, you. Uh, well, the, I mean, if the brand's <laughs> going to change any, look, we're, we don't need to change the name of the league and everything, but the trophy trophies evolve. I mean, you have to you have to know when to take the L, too. And that trophy was an L from, like, the day they brought it out in Rochester in 2013 or whenever we first got eyes on it. Yeah, I, I, I honestly, I could, I couldn't care less what they do with that stuff. Um, but uh, I, I definitely would like to see an all-star game and a skills competition. And I, you know, whether you do that mid-season the way some leagues do, or whether you do it at the end, 
Um, and I think you could do it at the end. And then there's just like exceptions granted for the two teams that are in the finals and do it the day before the final, get everybody down there, you know, a day earlier than normal, make it a huge event. Uh, we know that the league really, really only has that final weekend is kind of it's big, you know, uh, big, uh, I don't know what you'd call it. Um, you know, fence post event and uh, get everybody down there a day early and have a, have a nice all-star game. I think that'd be a great thing for the fans. You could mix in the skills competition as well and just really make it uh, an event that, that would draw maybe a, a broader audience than just the, the fans of the two teams that are competing. Right. And I'll add one too for by year 10, that gives you a year and a half from now too to plan this or roughly that I, you know, I don't know if it's the ICC finally expanding. We heard that for a couple of years and obviously 2020 was a different beast if it's FIFA finally doing something about a club world cup, I've heard enough about talking about that without doing it. But, you know, we just had this week, the announcement of an inter intercontinental cup that is, end of 2021 or beginning of 22, the UEFA champions league champion will play the Copa Libertadores champion. And I think if you're CONCACAF or more specifically the NWSL, you should be looking at that and saying, Hmm, we've been beaten to this idea and we should get our act together because, um, that there's no reason that these things should keep getting tabled, maybe 2020 and the virus being one, sure. But, you know, by, by 10th year anniversary, let's have something proper on that front for the NWSL champion, or maybe it's that year's Challenge Cup, if it's more recent than that. Somebody is playing the Champions League, you know, champion, whatever. Another event to the point that you've both made, that it's an event, it is a you know, some cup of cups, a super cup that, you know, these European leagues, all, you know, you can win six trophies in Europe in a season because you can win a super cup. That's really a preseason game, but it's a cup. Like we can, we can figure this out. I'd like to see that. So. Yeah. And I think, I think also, and this is truly just my dream, which is that, um, that, you know, these leagues, especially, I think maybe you talk specifically about the NWSL in, in the U S and the WSL, in Europe where there's just a little bit less um, there just hasn't, I mean, we obviously like the U S has not figured out a way to, to participate in any sort of um, champions league that, the you know, they, that UEFA runs. Um, I, I would love for there to be a little bit less possessiveness and just figuring out ways for these teams to play each other more. Cause I am, I'm just kind of sick of talking about it. I'd really mm -hmm. like for them just to play each other. Well, and we got news recently that there will be a CONCACAF Nations League on the women's side, which is, I think, great to hear for everybody who's not the U.S. or Canada, basically, and, and maybe Mexico. You know, some of the, you know, great for the non-traditional sort of power teams or just the teams we always see at the, um, at the final events for qualifying. But we also need to see the club game developed. The, the answer is not always more international programming and that's a men's problem, a women's problem, everything. So uh, that's, that's a whole other, other beast, but um, I, I don't want to run us too long here. So I wanted to hit the, the rapid fire section here. A um, couple predictions quick, cause we asked for them. Um, we've got at up the rabbit on Twitter it says sky blue FC will win the NWSL in 2021. And you can take that to the bank. I replied to that tweet as it was also at me with, a gif of Jim Halpert raising a glass drunk. And <laughs> that is my feeling on that. I do think sky blue is getting better, but um, yeah. 
I don't, I don't see that happening in 2021. I, I mean, yeah, we'll talk about this more as, <laughs> as that picture becomes clearer, but Portland is going to be something else next year. We'll see if anybody can be better than them. Mm-hmm. Um, Rick Pitlick, Pitlick, I'm not sure. Sorry for any mispronunciation. England finally wins one of the big ones with Serena Vigman at the helm, which won't be till after the Olympics. So I guess that's next up for them would be Euros at home or 2023 World Cup. Uh, I weep because I love the Netherlands and think they need Serena to win the World Cup. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I think Euros at home is the big opportunity. Um, I, yeah, I think that that that's the one, um, especially because obviously with the Olympics, that's, that's team UK. It's a little bit different. So team GB. Yeah. Yeah. Team GB. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I I don't know. Uh, England two straight world cup semifinals. So certainly they're, they're on the cusp. Um, Grant Wiedenfeld prediction. Lindsay Horan leads the USWNT in points again in 2021. Lavelle may be a more exceptional talent, but I think Haran is the more productive in the team overall. Durability also a factor. Leading the points, leading the team in points in 2021. That's a lot of different things to consider. But um, either of those players, or who do you think? Either of you? Who's going to be the top U.S. performer next year? Yeah. Um, National team only, I guess, would be the yeah. The caveat. Uh, I don't know. I think you got a lot of good options there. I, <laughs> I think hard to say, but yes, Haran absolutely could for sure. Um, I think it probably just depends. If you talk about midfielders, it probably just depends on whether they stick with, with one system or if they, you know, have a lot of variety. Yeah. I'd say presser Mewis is probably my top candidates yeah. for that category. Yeah, and it was Preston Haran in 2020 with seven goals, three assists each, uh, parallel numbers there. So, um, you know, I think we do forget, you know, we talked a little bit about this, but, you know, press for the three months a year, three months of the year that, well, two months, I guess, that things were normal, had a very good 2020 for those two months, then obviously things shut down. So, you know, we'll see. Um, it's, been, it's been good at Manchester United, certainly. I think, honestly, the, the most informed U.S. player right now by a country mile is Tobin Heath. And, and yeah, that's, yeah. you know, somewhat a product of the fact that she's playing and a lot of players are not, but she has been very good. I thought it stood out that that point stood out at the Netherlands game and continues to just score some, some worldies for Manchester United. So. Yeah. I mean, in terms, and that, that's a good point too, with, with press, who I also agree could be absolutely the, the team's top, top scorer next year in the, um, she's been playing just more of uh, the nine role for Manchester United, and it just kind of takes time to integrate that role into a team. So it makes sense why Mewis and Heath have been able to jump in a little bit quicker. Um, but sh- if she gets rolling, I think that she's going to be hard to hard to stop. Um, okay, we'll, we'll go through rapid fire here. How about Olympic champion, assuming we have an Olympics? Any bold predictions at this stage six, seven months out? Nope. It's really hard for me to bet against the U.S. <laughs> honestly, I think uh, I think that I I think so highly of Vladko Andonovsky that I think that the U.S. is going to win the Olympics. I can't argue with that. I don't know, John. It sounded like you didn't want to argue. I, I will say uh, my team to watch. I don't know if I'll say champion, but I'd like to see a draw in the next six months. But I am very intrigued at Brazil under Pia Sunhaga with being built around Dabinia. I think that could be very intriguing. 
Yeah, I think the yeah, it'd be nice to yeah. see them with some organized team play, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, Six-team playoff for NWSL. Any, I guess inherently there's going to be a surprise maybe there, but any dark horse for you outside of the Portland, North Carolina duopoly? Um, I mean, I think that that also definitely helps Houston, um, with their opportunity. I think, I mean, I think Houston is, is, you know, in the realm of the conversation of top four for next year, but, um, I think top six for sure. I think they're going to make their first proper NWSL postseason next year. I think sky blue too, to just kind of tie it up with the, the listener question or statement earlier. I think sky blue has got a real chance of getting in there. Racing Louisville. I still want to call them Rossing. Rossing, I got to get the Lawville right too. So racing Lawville, who ends up Louisville? Louisville. <laughs> that's it. That's, that's sure. as good. Louisville. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> um, <laughs> who ends up playing there? Because uh, this ties into my who stays overseas question, I guess. Um, they have almost half their picks in the expansion draft. That's a slight exaggeration. We don't know if they're showing up there. Who, who do you say, how does this year end up for those picks that are not actually contracted to them yet? I mean, I think Tobin Heath and Kristen Press are at the very least going to finish this WL season, WSL season with Manchester United. Um, And past that, I really can't say. Caitlin Ford's been doing wonderfully with Arsenal. I don't know why she would leave. Um, I think Alana Kennedy is maybe the person perhaps most likely to come back um, just because she's not on like a powerhouse WSL team, but I really don't know who is going to be playing for Louisville uh, this year, certainly. How about um, coaching coaching decisions here? Let's uh, we could go a lot with you know uh, we could go into a lot of coaching stuff, but who do you think maybe has a, a great year? What about you, John? A, a good year on the coaching front? Maybe that just ties well, in like- Sky Blue Point. Yeah, I, I think Mark Parsons obviously has the talent to to take Portland back to the top. So, well, this will be an interesting Paul Riley year too. I think, mm-hmm. especially with just the ra- rapid change that his team has seen. Mm-hmm. And Clarkson too. You know, listen, I, I'm not saying that's me, but you could write off what Houston did as kind of a one-off this year. So I think they're probably still going to have a bit of a chip on their shoulder about proving themselves over the duration of a season. Yeah. Uh, O.L. Rain recently teased that they're expecting two players from Lyon, their sister slash parent team to come over to the rain in 2021. Uh, I've, I've been hearing for a while and reported Sarah Buhadi is, is one that seems almost a certain. And you might notice that the rain just lost their, number one and number two goalkeepers recently. And who knows, it could also be Marajan. We've seen uh, Jean-Michel Alas talking about Wendy Renard in the press, possibly playing on both teams at some point. Maybe more generally, who's an international player, either of you that you want to see, want to see, think might come, um, anything, anything on the fun front there. I mean, I don't think, I don't think this is going to happen, but the thought that I had upon, you know, OL um, saying that they might be sending some people over is I would love to see, I think that out of that team, a player that might enjoy it and might, you know, benefit from coming over here would be Nikita Paris. I would love to see 
I would love to see some English players come over here um, just because I do think in terms of physicality, their style is maybe the closest to the way American players play. So I think that I would love to see kind of what they can, what they can do over here. Um, I don't know. I love that. I love that the U S is getting more Japanese players. I think that pipeline is interesting. And I, you know, I think that I would also love to see some South American players come in. So just more internationals in general, but that's kind of was my only, only thought in terms of like a single player. Mm -hmm. Well, how about we ended um, we've got angel city. We know they're coming for 2022 and they've got a, a ramp you know, for the whole year, which is a rarity. Sacramento, I don't know. I've got a bunch of question marks in my notes next to Sacramento. I'd, whatever happens there, somebody can predict that for 2021. That'll be the over-under there, I guess, to, to watch. Utah 2023, um, a lot of things we could talk about. Anything Anything jumping out? Maybe hopefully we get another – maybe I hope we get some clarity beginning of the year there. What, what it, let's, let's end it with Angel City then because we know they're coming. What what are you looking at? They need a coach. Um, they need a lot of staff. Obviously, they're going to start at some point um, looking at players and acquiring them. They still need the brand unveiled. What are we looking forward to in L.A., which has been a long time coming for that market? What do you think, John? We'll start with you. I think the interesting thing with them is going to be what kind of a balance do they establish between – big name players and actually building a competitive team because we know that if you have three or four stars that that can really limit what you can do in a lot of situations down roster. And I think that we assume, and maybe we're wrong about this, but we assume that there are several big name U S players at least that want to play in that market, whether that's because they're from there or whether that's because LA is just the destination that people want to be at. And so, you know, I think how they build their roster and, and that balance of star power uh, with, with also building a competitive team and how quickly they can do that. Because we've seen that traditionally these expansion teams can take years and years and years to put together the right combination of players. And are they going to be an exception to that because of who they are? Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of branding, I, they're going to be there. The team at this point is already a brand. They've announced more brand partnerships and staffing than maybe any NWSL team ever has before, even before the roster has been put together. Um, yeah. I, I think it's going to depend on the coach. I think it's also going to depend on, I think um, that we might see a coach and a GM. I don't think they necessarily want one person doing both roles. Um, and so it's hard to tell because at this point, Angel City is a brand that has not yet filled out its soccer staff. Um, but the one person they already have on staff um, is a stats person. So very LA, right? But they, they are taking this from a little bit more of a tech um, and a more mathematical approach. And so I think that... Um, they will be working from a position of information and, and power in terms of um, what they have in front of them and how much money they should spend. But I think John's right that you have an ownership group um, that part of the poll was they were very inspired by the 2019 U S women's national team, and they might really want some of those players on their team. And so that's a difficult balance. I think it's a difficult balance to make, but I, my prediction is that I do not think that angel city is going to wait until the 2021 
expansion draft to start signing players. I think they're going to get a jump on that early. Mm-hmm. Well, it'd be fascinating to see. Um, I think certainly there are a lot of, uh, that's a big ownership group, a lot of cooks in the kitchen maybe. And I think a lot of people are going to want to be there, as you said. So be fascinating to see who, <laughs> who makes it through, who's selected, uh, who knows what. I mean, but that'll be, you know, to the point of a lot of themes that we talked about, 10th anniversary season, getting back to LA or getting to LA, I guess, you know, it was not back. It was a previous league. So, um, that'll be a good, that'll be one good way to celebrate the, the 10th anniversary season, I think. So, uh, well, we, we went a little bit long here, I guess, but wanted to really touch on the year ahead. We probably still only scratched the surface in some ways, but, um, that is a, a wrap on 2020. And very early predictions or talking points from us for 2021 and a little bit beyond that. Um, that was fun. I think that was fun. Um, you know, always good to look forward. I'm sure we'll be wrong about a few things and maybe inspire some, uh, I don't know. I thought we had a great brand talk there. Maybe, maybe somebody's listening to us about what to preserve in the brand. <laughs> um, well, John Claire, thank you for, for chatting and um, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you, Jacqueline Purdy for producing this podcast and um, thank you genuinely everybody who's listened throughout the year. It's been uh, a challenging year for everybody, but uh, a good year in some ways, in many ways. And um, we keep on going here with um, thinking and talking critically on women's soccer in the U S. So hope you enjoyed it and hope you're back with us in 2021. Thanks for listening to the equalizer podcast. Thank you.